Okay, I want to start out with something that's not very pleasant, but I think it, it's, uh, it, it, it's applicable. On October the 9th of this year, a man in India was seen walking down the street with an axe in one hand and the severed head of his wife in the other. And thank God the authorities got him before he did anything else to anybody. And the strange thing was, is they said he was calm and he was cool and he was collect. That he had suspected his wife had committed adultery, so he punished her. A lot of things went through my mind when I read that story. Crazy, absolutely. Uh, psychopath, absolutely. The ravages of sin, definitely. This evening, we're going to look uh, at, at our sinful nature. If you were not here last week, if you were here, a quick review. If you were not here, we began a series last Wednesday night titled The Doctrine of Salvation. Now, that normally doctrine puts people to sleep when they hear that, but But I said the second most important doctrine or belief is what you believe about God is number one. And then salvation, how you relate to God, how you can know God. And in this study last week that we began that we'll be doing, we've been kind of contrasting, we're kind of contrasting uh, an old but, but one that had kind of been dormant but rising theology called Calvinism and its understanding of salvation and versus basically a traditional Baptist view of salvation. And tonight, we're going to look at the subject of total depravity, of depravity. Now, we have for the screens, you see on the screens, let's look at it on the screens. Calvinism, if you're taking notes, and I was showed that our new bulletin, we need to do a better job of having notes available, but this is very important. Calvinism, a system a theology about salvation was developed by a lawyer, theologian, preacher named John Calvin in the 1500s. And this acronym kind of defines his theology, which is prevalent again and which is rising in the Southern Baptist Convention. TULIP, and I'm going to go over these real quick, and then we'll spend tonight on the T, and we're going to kind of walk through these in the weeks ahead. T means total depravity. U next week is unconditional election. L is limited atonement. Some of you are going, what does this mean? That's why you got to come back and you will hear. I is irresistible grace. And P is perseverance of the saints. We're going to look at that total depravity tonight and what that means to Calvin and what that may or may not mean to you and me. And I said this last week. If you're a Calvinist and you're part of this church, amen. We're not trying to spook you off or spook you away. But I... I think it is such an important subject in, in our seminaries and in other places. It's being taught. And I think understanding the right things about salvation is huge, not only for you, but for the people that you love and care about. What does the word depravity mean? It, it, it's a fancy word for sinful or wicked or corrupt, okay? Sinful, wicked, corrupt, that's what depravity is. So let's begin with this where any Orthodox Christian would would be in agreement, we are all sinners. We are all sinners. Remember what we did Sunday morning if you were here? Had you point at your neighbor? How many of you have already forgotten about Sunday morning's sermon last week? 
most of you. Okay, thank you. You make me feel good. We're all sinners. And you can thank your great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, for, uh, for getting this ball rolling. Now, I'm going to use a lot of different scriptures tonight. My encouragement to you would be to write these down, look them up later. Uh, verify that I didn't lie to you, that I'm telling you the truth. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1, God created man in his image. Genesis, uh, Genesis 2 begins to unpack that. Genesis 3 is when Eve makes the big mistake, right? Adam and Eve, I'm sorry. I, somehow I always get messed up on that. You know, and the Bible says before, before this happened, Adam and Eve were, were sinless. And one of the strange things it says is, you know, they, they walked around the garden naked and there was no shame. And, and this is a true story. I cannot believe that a Sunday school teacher would broach this subject. But with third grade kids, a Sunday school, not at this church, asked the kids, why were Adam and Eve naked and didn't feel ashamed? And a little boy raised his hand real quick and she thought, man... What a little theologian. And he said, without batting an eye, because they didn't have mirrors yet. (laughs) And all of God's people said, okay, that wasn't it, though. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And in Romans 5.12, Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all have Sin. Now, we're not going to get into all the theological ramifications of it, but here's the bottom line. When Adam and Eve sinned, and, and it broke the human nature, and part of that result was going to be physical death. And sin, everybody that's born is born with a sinful nature. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Leave that there for just a second, Brian. No, I, I, last week I beat this drum in John 3.16 and 2 Peter 3.9 where it uses the word everyone or John 3.16 for whosoever, uh, everyone who believes, that that Greek word is the same and, and that it means everyone, all. When it says for all have sinned, that doesn't mean all the elective sinned. It means we have all sinned. And I think you would agree with that. The biblical word there in Romans 3.23 for sin means to miss the mark. How many of you are hunters in here? Y'all aren't proud, huh? You're not good hunters because you're raising your hand like. Okay, you're out in the woods, and you miss a 24-point deer, 400 pounds, steroided up. You miss it by an inch or by 10 yards. Did you miss it? Do you think you can come back and brag to people? I only missed it by an inch. No, you lie and you say, well, I failed at that time, or my phone rang, or you have an excuse. But to miss it's to miss it, correct? See, here's the thing with sin. We judge sin in our way, don't we? Socially, that person's a bad person. Well, I, do, I don't really intend to do A sinner is a sinner. We all sin. We all miss the mark. And, and we're born with, with a sinful nature. If we were to go over to the, to the two- and three-year-olds tonight, and you hung around there long enough... They're not conscious that they're sinning, but they will, won't they? You do not have to teach a kid how to bite another kid, how to throw a block, how to lie or to be selfish, correct? 
They know it. It's in their blood, thanks to Adam and Eve, who someday we need to have an intervention with when we get to heaven. So let's just, every Calvinist, non-Calvinist, I don't consider myself anything. I just want to, I think we have to be real careful about labels and tagging ourselves. Let's just try to stay glued to the Bible, correct? But anybody, no matter what your label is, if you're an Orthodox Christian, you would have to agree we're all sinners, right? We all are. Now, here's the question tonight. It's kind of the dilemma. How depraved are we? This may not seem like a relevant question to you, but it is an extremely relevant question in the argument of Calvinism versus non-Calvinism. How sinful are we? Now, as I said last week, my desire is not at all to bash uh, people who I disagree with, and it's certainly not to misrepresent them. So, if someone on the other side is preaching at their church tonight the opposite view of what I'm preaching, I'm okay if they quote me or people I uh, study, as long as they're telling the truth. So, that's all I'm trying to do. How does, how does a Calvinist view our depravity or your depravity. Well, some, now this would be not all, certainly, but some kind of on the extreme or what's called a hyper-Calvinism oftentimes would say about, about us is that human beings are basically just scum. I mean, we're rotten to the core. I think it's a misunderstanding of some teachings in Romans 3 and that we are sinful and wicked and all just rotten. I had a, uh, one of my sisters whose husband's a minister was on staff for a church, I mentioned this last week, where they brought in a guy who was a hyper and extreme Calvinist, and uh, really the, the big thrust of his pe- preaching was that, that we're all just scumbags and that God, is, uh, God should knock our heads off anytime he gets a chance to. So, again, that's an extreme form of it. It's interesting, Sigmund Freud who was kind of an early psychiatrist, or I guess kind of the founder of psychiatry and psychology, uh, said there's little good in human beings. In fact, most I've met are simply trash. Wow. Uh, Freud spent too much time listening to people on the couch, didn't he, to come to that conclusion. I don't believe that's right, and and a lot of people I know who are Calvinists don't believe that's right. What What did John Calvin himself believe? Well, Calvin believed this. Very important. He believed that in the Garden of Eden, when we sinned, when our kinfolk sinned, that it broke the human nature completely. Holy and irrevocably, our natures were corrupted. And that the, listen, the image of God in us was basically destroyed. This is very important because Calvin comes to the conclusion that because we're so sinful and so broken, we cannot respond to God. And I'm simplifying this, but that basically God has to reach down and pull us to him. We have no choice. We couldn't be saved if we wanted to be saved unless he chooses us for this. It's impossible for us to respond to God. Now, how many of you see a little bit of attention there? If you're paying attention, you do. I had a friend in seminary 
I'm not sure he was a Calvinist. He just was dumb. He had heard things, and he hadn't thought them through. And one day he goes, you know, in Genesis 3, man chose to sin, and man lost their ability to choose after that. Well, I thought, well, it sounds theological, doesn't it? I'll go back to that in a moment. A pretty well-known Bible teacher uh, in his commentaries, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, as for you, you were dead... He's talking to Christians about their past. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You you were dead in these. This Bible scholar says that a lost person is dead, and dead people cannot respond. Dead people cannot say yes. Dead people cannot exercise faith. And if Calvinism is right on this deal, that's a big deal because human beings do not have an ability at all within themselves to respond to God. I don't believe that they are right on that. Let me tell you what I believe. I believe we're broken, but we can respond. Let me rephrase that. This is what I believe the Bible teaches. That we are broken, but we can respond. Oftentimes, a lot of theological concepts, the the verbiage is not found in the Bible. The phrase Total depravity is not found in the Bible. Neither is the phrase Trinity. So you have to be careful. We believe the Trinity is correct. But I don't think there's any doubt that what the Bible teaches is that we have a sinful nature that has been broken by our sin. Sin has affected us. We are, without Jesus Christ, we are separated from God. Even as Christians, we have to deal with and struggle with our sinful nature. But sin has affected our emotions, our spirit, and even our physical bodies. We die physically as a result of sin. Did you know that? That's what it tells us is Genesis chapter 3. But I don't believe that we are broken beyond our ability to respond to Jesus Christ. My friends who said man chose to sin in in Genesis 3 and lost their ability to choose failed to read Genesis 4. One chapter over. Cain is mad at his brother Abel. You remember this story? And God comes down and he tells Cain, he goes, you need to do right. Choose, choose to do right. If you don't, you are going to end up in big trouble. And what did Cain do? He chose to do wrong. We didn't lose our ability to choose. Or Genesis 4 wouldn't make sense. And the the preacher who said that, that dead people can't do anything good, they can't respond. Dead people can't do anything bad either, amen? I mean, come on. We are dead spiritually before Jesus Christ. We are not inoperably dead laying on a table. We are dead spiritually. Our hearts are darkened. Our eyes are darkened to God. We don't understand things from a spiritual perspective. But let me tell you something. It may be broken, but you and I are still in the image of God Almighty. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man. Listen, God created man in his own image. Your, your kinfolk are not apes. We were all created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them, okay? That was before the fall. 
Let's go to Genesis 9 after the fall. In fact, this is written after God had to destroy the earth because of this people in Noah's time. Listen to what he says to Noah. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For Read that out loud. James chapter 3, verse 9, thousands of years later, listen to what God says through James. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been... Listen, there's no question without Jesus Christ, you're headed to hell. Tough. You're broken. You're spiritually dead. But you can still respond to God. Go back and read this when you get home in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve sinned, and they realized they were naked, and they put on the, they went down to Walmart or somewhere and got the little fig outfits. <laughs> A little humor to lift the tension. But after their nature was broken, they still heard God and responded to God didn't they? Are we broken? Absolutely. In Matthew 24, 37, though, listen to what Jesus said to broken people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how I've often longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Read that last part with me. And you were not willing. In Acts 17.30, I used this last week, it says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Either God is playing games with us, or God tells us that we, even though we're broken, we can respond to him. We're broken, but we can respond. So let me give you this second thought here. This may sound contradictory, but I think it's very important. Salvation is all of God, but we must respond. We can respond, but we must respond. Salvation's not a Baptist thing. I can't save you. I can baptize you till my back goes out and to your water law. That's not going to save you. You can join the church every week. That's not going to save you. Only God can save you. But, but even though it's all of God... We must respond. Now, I've heard, I've heard some Calvinists say this. When people would say, what, what do I need to do to be saved? I've actually heard them say, you can't do anything to be saved. You can't do anything because you're totally depraved. And God's going to have to reach down there and save you. You can't do anything. You know, it's interesting, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, this is the day of Pentecost. This is Peter, who spent three years at Jesus' hip. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter was telling them they needed to repent and get right. And they said to Peter and the other, what shall we do? Now, Peter did not say, you can't do anything. You can't do anything. You can't do anything. Here's what Peter said. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When they said, what do we need to do to be saved? Peter said, you need to get right with God through Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 16, Acts 16, verse 30 and 31, this is Paul and Silas are in the jail in Philippi. And it earthquake happens, the jail comes open, and, and Peter and Silas don't leave, and the, the jailer comes up, and he brought them out, and he said, sirs, 
what must I do to be saved? Paul, this is funny. I remember several years ago a Calvinist said Paul was the original Calvinist. That's getting the cart before the horse 1,600 years, by the way. What did Paul say? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's, that last part he's really saying, and if your household will believe, so will they. In other words, we are broken, salvations of God, but we can and we must respond. We can and we must respond. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I think, sum this up. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. Not by work, so that no one can boast. Now listen, here's how some people translate that. Some of my Calvinist friends, they say, well, the gift of God there is faith. <laughs> You're too deprived to respond to God. So God gives you faith so you can be saved. He may not give it to Jeremy. He may give it to Tara. Is that what that means? Well, no, that's not what it means. There's one place in the Bible where it talks about faith being a gift, and that's in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, when it's talking about spiritual gifts of Christians. And that some Christians have a gift to believe God and trust God for big things. Folks, in, in one sense, everything we have is a gift from God. The ability to see, walk, talk, hear, think, do anything, it's, it's a gift from God that God allows us. So you could say, yes, in that sense, faith's a gift. But in this passage, it's talking about salvation being the gift of God. That you can't work for it, you can't earn it, it's a gift, but you've got to receive it by faith. That makes sense? Salvation is the gift of God, and we receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. Does the Holy Spirit have to draw people to Jesus? Absolutely. I've heard sometimes a passage in John 6 used to say, well... Holy Spirit may not draw them to Christ. When John chapter 12, verse 32, here's what Jesus said. When I'm lifted up, what do you think he's talking about there? From the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Listen, the Holy Spirit wants to draw all, everybody to you. You cannot be saved apart from the Holy Spirit's conviction and pull on your life. But the great news is, is the Holy Spirit is wanting to knock and convict. You can be saved. You have to respond. And you know who gets all the credit? It's God. Think about this with me. How many of you have $50 million? I'm going to look in just a minute. If you do, see me after church. We have a thing or two I need to get some money from you about. If tonight you met somebody in the parking lot and they look legit, they called you by name and said, look, I'm just wanting to bestow a miracle on somebody. Here is $50 million. You can verify it in the morning. If you want it, take it, reach out your hand and take it. How many of you would reach out your hand and take it? Well, amen, I would. I'd reach out both hoping there was two checks. <laughs> now, Six weeks later, when I'm living in a mansion, I'd work for free at that point. When we would build the Craig Children's Building over there after the donation. I would be an idiot to take credit for that gift, wouldn't I? All I did was receive it. I had to receive it, but the $50 million and all the blessings, that didn't come from me. That came from the person who gave it to me. Listen, we're broken. 
Without Christ, people are lost. Don't ever forget that. John 3, 18 says that he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Lost people are in trouble. They're separated from God, but not to the point where they can't respond. They have to respond. But all the glory goes to Jesus who does the saving. I want to share with you one last story that I think illustrates this so well. During World War II, in the the waters outside of the the Philippines, there was a a ship. It was the USS Lowe, L-O. This was in October of 1944. The story was told that a sailor, Dr. Paige Patterson tells this story in one of his books, that a sailor walked out on deck. This probably saved his life. And as he got to the deck, right at that moment, he saw a kamikaze plane. Now, that was a a Japanese suicide bomber loaded with bombs, and their whole mission was to to destroy ships and whatever. You know, the, the, the pilot died, if you don't know what a kamikaze is. And he said the plane was about 100 feet from him, barely down. He said, I knew I was dead, and it was going to hit me. But right at the last moment, the plane went under him and hit a lower deck. And he said it wasn't seconds later that those bombs just blew up. And he said it threw him about 10 feet in the air, almost made him deaf. He could hear a little bit, but it blinded him. And he said he realized he was on fire. And he said the only thing smart he did was when you're on fire and you're near water, you do what? You jump. So he jumped in the Pacific Ocean. A few minutes later, that ship, ironically, which was the first to be hit by a kamikaze, that carrier sank. He said a huge explosion, which that too may have saved his life by the attention it drew. But he says now he finds himself in the Pacific Ocean. He can barely hear and he can't see. So he starts to swim, but after just a minute, he realizes, I'm in the Pacific Ocean. I cannot swim to safety. So he starts trying to grab anything that he can, and he can't, he can't find any person. He can't find anything to float on. And after about 30 minutes, he said, I was starting to give up. And then I faintly heard a helicopter. And he said, I started to scream. I started to holler. I started waving my arms as much as I could. And he said, then I, I could tell that helicopter was hovering over me. And they dropped a harness down, but he said, I couldn't even get in it. So a corpsman jumped in the water. And he said, take a hold to me. I'll take you to safety. So he reached out and he grabbed that corpsman. They pulled him up. And six or seven weeks later, when they took the bandage off his eyes, they didn't know if he'd be able to see or not. They were in a pretty dark room. They took him off, and the first thing he saw was the corpsman who had saved his life. The rest of his life, that guy owes his salvation. Yeah, he reached out and grabbed him. He hollered for help. He couldn't save himself. He was in too broken of a situation. He was going to die on his own. They came and saved him. Listen, without Jesus, that's how we are. We're blinded by sin. We're helpless. And we can never save ourselves. But you got to holler out to Jesus to save you, and you got to take him into your life to be saved.
So I would ask you, number one tonight, have you done that? If you haven't, come tonight. You've got to respond. Here's the great news. You've got to respond, and when you respond, he'll save you. Come and do that tonight. Maybe you'd like to join our church. We'd love for you to. If, if this is where God would want you to be, we'd love for you to. come. One way you can do that, we stand, you slip out, we'll help you join tonight. Christian, maybe this evening, part of all this is that we've got to tell people about Jesus for them to respond. Are, are you and I doing this? Are we sharing Christ? Are we promoting and lifting up Jesus? Christian, maybe where you're standing at the altar, you need to do business with God. Let's do that. Let's stand. You come now as we stand.